Hey, so we're in a series called Get It Together, and that's because the Apostle Paul wrote a letter a long time ago to the people of Corinth. There was a church that was in a city called Corinth. Corinth, if you remember, it was a city that was kind of like a combination of New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. And so this city had a lot of problems. It had a lot of problems, a lot of issues, and the church that met in that city also had a lot of issues and a lot of problems. And so as a result, Paul wrote them this letter to try to fix those problems, really to smack them upside the head and say, you got to get your acts together. And so what he did is he, he tried to accomplish three goals with this letter. His number one goal is that these people in the church would put Jesus first. He wanted to get them to put Jesus first. And he said, you need to have Jesus be absolutely the top of your list. And then Paul said, if Jesus is going to be at the top of your list, then the next thing you need to do is you need to realize that you're all in this together. If all of you are putting Jesus first, then he's the umbrella and you're all underneath that, which means you have to get together. But then they also needed to get their acts together because if they were going to be following Jesus, Jesus was going to lead them into a place of holiness. And so Paul was like, you have to live lives of holiness. So there are these three things that are going on together, putting Jesus first and then people getting together in unity and also people getting their act together and living in holiness. And so that's why we called the series Get It Together. And we've been talking through the book of 1 Corinthians to sort of look at some of the problems that Paul was addressing and how he tried to solve those problems and how we pointed the people back to Jesus all the time. Now, last week I tried to tackle all of 1 Corinthians 11 in one message and totally failed at it uh, in so many ways, but I totally failed at it. And one of the things that I want to do this morning is to actually just give you the bullet points that you should have gotten last week that I should have given you last week in that message. I got a little bit distracted by some of the stuff at the beginning and didn't close it out with the stuff at the end. And so here you go. I'm going to give you some of the bullet points. I put them in your note sheet. There's also, they're also in your live event. They won't be on the screen, but here are the bullet points. Men and women hold different positions in the church. Paul started last chapter by talking about how men and women held different positions in the church. Now, it's important I use the word positions there because Paul wasn't talking about men and women having different value. It's not that there's a hierarchy of value. Some people are more important than other, important, other people. No, that's not what Paul is talking about. He's just talking about positions, like on a football field or a basketball court. Different people have different positions. We have a tendency to label certain positions as more important. But if the quarterback has no linemen in front of him, he's a dead man. And so just because he gets paid the most doesn't really mean he's the most important on that field or, or whatever kind of analogy you want. The main point is that Paul was saying that men and women have different positions, spots in the church. But the second line is that men and women also have equal participation in the life of the church. That there's what Paul is trying to communicate is that there's a relationship between the father and the son that gets mirrored in the relationship between men and women. But that doesn't mean one is better than the other. One's more important than the other. It means that all of us have equal participation in this thing called the church. And then Paul, in the context of last week's chapter, he began to talk about a lot of gender stereotypes for the people back then. And so I want to highlight something that I didn't get to highlight last week. In a society that suppresses women, 
frequently what women will have to do to survive is to pick one of two different paths. If the society is suppressing women, some women women will take the pathway of accentuating and leveraging their femininity to gain power over men. That happens in those societies. Other women will take the approach of diminishing their femininity to be less of a threat to men. That happens in societies where women are suppressed. And Paul says, that's not going to happen with you. Because you're not going to do the whole women's suppression thing. Instead, what you're going to do is everybody's going to have equal participation in this church thing. And as a result, men and women, I want you to be yourselves. He says, men should look like men, act like men. Women should look like women, act like women. Be yourself. Don't try to be something that you're not in order to get to some position that you don't need anyway. Different positions, equivalent participation, so be yourself is what he was saying. And then he ended chapter 11 by talking about how in a potluck situation or when taking communion, and back then in that society, they did both at the same time. Communion was part of the potluck that they would do when they gathered together as a church. And he said, in your potluck situation, you rich people are eating all the food and the poor people, when they come later, there's no food left for them. So that's pretty stupid. Don't do that. That's what Paul says. He says, I'll tell you what to do. All of you should wait until everybody gets there and everybody has a chance to get some food and then you eat together. Do it together. And you might say, well, wait a minute. What is this all about? What is it about the rich people have to show extra accommodations for the poor people? How does that relate to gender stereotypes and men and women and stuff? Well, it's because there's a bigger story that Paul is talking about, remember? He's talking about the fact that we need to get our act together in holiness, but we all need to come together in unity And so all of chapter 11 was really about this one big point. You guys are a body, and you look different from each other, and you have different positions, and you have different roles, and you have different gifts, and you have different responsibilities, and you have different economic statuses, and you have different genders, but that's fine. All the differences are fine. Come together and be a body, even if sometimes that means showing accommodation to someone else which is a perfect segue into today's chapter. Because in today's chapter, chapter 12, Paul is going to talk specifically about the body, and he is going to use the body metaphor to make this point more clearly, that the fact that you're different from each other is not a bad thing, it's a beautiful thing. The differences among believers are God's design. He wants those differences, and that difference makes for something beautiful. So we're going to jump into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to look at uh, verses 1 through 6. And one of the big questions that's on these guys' mind as Paul is writing this is, okay, Paul, you talked about men and women. That's a physical difference. You talked about rich and poor. That's an economic difference. Both of those differences are differences we experience in our normal society. But Paul, what about the spiritual differences? You see, here's the other problem. When it comes to churches, if you've been in church long enough, I know you've probably done this. You've sized people up according to which person in the group is most spiritual. 
And maybe you've measured other people according to their apparent spirituality. Or maybe you've measured the pastor according to that sort of guidelines. And, and maybe you've had a tendency, we've all had that ten- tendency to sort of gauge people on the different levels of spirituality. And some people are more spiritual and we look up to them. And some people are less spiritual and we sort of, well, you need to get your act together. And, and Paul, what do we do about the spiritual differences? That's what he talks about in chapter 12. Here we go, verse 1. He says, now about gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, they had a problem where they came from a society where there was idol worshipers and there were people telling them to worship those idols. So they'd been deceived. And so Paul says, I need to tell you something about deception and how to avoid deception, how you can tell who the truly spiritual people are. Who are the people who really have the Spirit and who don't? In verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, in everyone, it is the same God at work. Just just catch on to something here for a second. Paul uses a threefold phrase there. He talks about the Spirit, he talks about the Lord, and then he mentions God. And you need to know that the Apostle Paul, even though he never uses the word Trinity, believed that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus the Son, whom we call our Lord, and that God the Father are all three God, even though we can refer to them separately, simultaneously, And somehow that works. Listen, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that scholars have been debating for a long time and churches have been trying to understand for the longest time. But here's the point. We didn't make it up as a human thing. What we're trying to do is just simply accept the fact that the Bible repeatedly tells us God is one and then it repeatedly tells us Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God and we can relate to each one of them individually. We don't know how to put the pieces together and that's why we glorify the God above us who's smart than all of us who knows reality beyond us. But this is Paul, without using the word Trinity, referring to the Trinity. And you have to just simply understand that. But there's another issue going on here. When you and I read verses 4 through 6, we have a tendency to read them wrong. We have a tendency to see them in the wrong way. And as a result, we have a tendency to think the wrong thing about them. Look at it again. Verse 4. Different kinds of gifts, same spirit. Verse 5. Different kinds of service, same Lord. Verse 6. Different kinds of working, all of them in everyone, it's the same God. Here's our problem. We have a tendency to say there's one God and he's above all of us. And all of the people, everyone, is just experiencing the same God. Particularly when it comes to conversations about unity. Church unity. 
Some of you know that I'm a part of an organization called the Greater Lafayette Gospel Association. I'm the, past, I'm the president of that association, and then one of my friends is the president of another association called the Pastors Alliance. I serve on the board of the Pastors Alliance, and that guy serves on the board of the Gospel Association. The Pastors Alliance is historically African-American pastors, and the uh, Greater Lafayette Gospel Association had been for the longest time all white pastors, and so we're trying to bridge some of the gaps here, and a couple years ago, there was a Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration that happened, and uh, the African-American Pastors Alliance had been doing the Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration for the longest time, where what it is, is it's a worship service, it's a gathering to worship God who gave us Dr. King, who tried to promote equality among the races in our country. And so the African-American Pastors Alliance has been doing this thing for the longest time, and then all of a sudden, as this two networks of churches began to develop friendships with each other, some of the white churches do what white churches tend to do when they're talking to black churches, and that is, oh, let's give you some money. I'm not even joking. This is the way it happened. And so one of the white churches was like, oh, the Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration, that sounds like a great thing. We want to join into that. But if we bring all of our people, it's going to be too big. And so we need to get a, a larger venue. So how about let's rent the Long Center? Oh, the Long Center's too expensive. Don't worry about it. We'll pay for it. And so this white church said, okay, we're going to bring a whole bunch of people. We want this to happen. It's going to be in a larger venue. We're going to pay for the larger venue. You guys still run the show, but we're going to pay for it. So then the planning started coming together. And they said, okay, the, the Pastors Alliance was still going to plan the whole thing, but the white church was going to fundraise it, was going to bankroll it. And so the, the Pastors Alliance was running it, and there was this one guy who was new on the Pastors Alliance, and he happened to have a friend who was a Muslim, and another friend who was a Jew, and he invited both of them to participate in the ceremony to participate in the service. And so here we are, it's going to be a service recognizing Dr. King's contribution, but also it's been historically a worship service for Christians to get together and celebrate the God who gave us Dr. King. And here's this one guy and he invites a Muslim to come and read scripture on the stage of the event. And he invites a a Jewish person to come and read scripture on the stage for the event. And so now these two people are, are on the, they're in the program, their names are on the program. And the church that bankrolled the thing is the church who prints the program and they look at the program and they see the names of these people on there and what they're supposed to be doing. And that church says, sorry, we can't have anything to do with that. We're stepping out. And so then they call me up and they're like, okay, Jeff, what do we do about this thing? And I call, I call my friend James up and he's the, he's the president of the pastor's alliance. I asked him, he said, Jeff, let me take care of it. So he calls the guy who scheduled those other two people and he got them to remove the Muslim from the, from the program, but to leave the Jewish person on the program because that's sort of a Christian compromise. And so uh, the white church that was part of doing this thing, that was sort of bankrolling the whole thing, they got back involved. They decided, okay, we will be a part of this thing. And I'm telling you this story because no matter who you are in this room, I imagine there's some part of that story that you can be a little bit frustrated by. And the question is, what does unity look like? I tell you what, for the next two months after that Martin Luther King celebration, for the next two months, we were debating this in a, in a whole bunch of meetings about what happened and why it happened and why that one guy's name got added to the program and then sharpied out and all kinds of stuff. It was a mess of conversation and it all boils down to this one thing. What does unity actually look like? And the Apostle Paul says here, there's one God who works in all men, and if you only read that one verse, you're going to get the wrong impression. 
Because in the context of what Paul just says here is he's actually saying there is something. There's one specific issue that isn't just a difference. It's a division. And this one issue that makes a division between those who are in the body, who have the Spirit, and those who are out of the body and don't have the Spirit, this one thing must be understood. Write it down this way. Those who embrace a partial Jesus do not have the Spirit. Those who embrace a partial Jesus do not have the Spirit. And so here's the deal. Paul writes in this statement, he says, no one can say Jesus is cursed if they have the Spirit, and no one can say Jesus is Lord if they don't have the Spirit. Now, that's a little weird because on the one hand, cursed doesn't seem like it's the opposite of Lord. Cursed, uh, well, first of all, Lord is when you say someone's in charge. They're the emperor. They're, they're totally in charge of your life. Lord means that. But, but cursed is a word that you would say is when you want something bad to happen to someone else. When you curse someone else, it's you saying, I want something bad to happen to you. And the weird thing is that the Greeks had a word for that. The word for when you wish ill on another human being is the Greek word katara. But that's not the word Paul uses here. Paul uses a word here that once I say it, some of you are going to be like, oh, I've heard that word before. He uses the word anathema. Or in English, sometimes we pronounce it anathema. And sometimes, in some contexts, you might have embraced that word and used that word in some fashion, but maybe you don't exactly know what it means. In the Greek context... The word anathema referred to when the gods had judged a person and were ready to destroy him. That person was anathema. They were convicted by the gods, ready to be destroyed. They were in the waiting, holding. They were on death row, basically. That's what anathema meant. But the word anathema for a Jewish person meant something slightly different. You see, in the Old Testament, the word anathema, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the word anathema was used to refer to the Hebrew word that we translate devoted. Now, the Hebrew word for devoted, that we translate as devoted, also doesn't refer to some attitude or conviction of the heart where I'm devoted to something. It refers, the Hebrew word devoted refers to a thing that belongs to God and God alone. A thing that belongs to God and God alone. And so if you have a thing that belongs to God and is God's alone, no one else is allowed to touch it. And if no one else is allowed to touch it, then that thing might as well just be burned up. And so they do. They destroy it. It belongs to God and God alone. When the Israelites marched around the city of Jericho, some of you know the story, they march around the city and then after seven days the walls fall down. God said, the entire city is devoted to me. And so practical application, destroy everything that's in it. And they didn't. They kept some of the devoted things and it ended up that they then lost their next battle and God had to bring some judgment on the people of Israel. It's one of the many times they failed God. But because God said the city is devoted to me, then they had to destroy all the things that were in it. But the word devoted specifically means the thing that has been marked as that for God alone and therefore usually ends up as a sacrifice. Now Paul says that the person without the Spirit talks about Jesus as anathema. 
That means if he's talking to Greek people, the Greek people would look at Jesus, and if they don't have the Spirit, the Greek people would look at Jesus as a person who is condemned to die and judged by God to die. A Hebrew person, if they use the word anathema about Jesus, they would consider Jesus the person who was destined to die because he was devoted completely to God. Now what's weird about that is that both of those are partially true. Because Jesus did come from God as a person completely devoted to his Father. And he died as a sacrifice for our sins. And his death as a sacrifice, Paul himself later on in the book of Galatians would actually say that Jesus became a curse for us. In other words, it's half of the story to say Jesus is cursed. You're halfway there when you recognize Jesus is anathema. He's the one who came from God, who was devoted to God, who was sacrificed for sins. He's the one who faced the judgment of God so the rest of us wouldn't have to. In other words, if you understand that Jesus died for your sins, you only have a partial Jesus. Because see, the other one, the people who have the Spirit, they call him Lord. They call him Lord. For the Romans, they knew what that meant. Lord is what you said when once a year you went before the governor of your region and he gave you a test and you would walk up to this little piece of incense and you would grab some incense and you would burn it over a little flame and you would say, Caesar is Lord. And then they would let you walk away and keep your life for another year. See, using the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is the person who says, Jesus is my emperor. He's the one in charge of my life. He's the one absolutely at the top. But for a Hebrew person, for a Jewish person, saying Jesus is Lord is even farther up. See, we talked about it just a couple weeks ago. Paul, when he uses the word Lord, he remembers that the way Hebrews use the word Lord is that the word Lord is their substitute for God's divine name. God's name that he gave to his people in the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. He called himself Yahweh. And they never wanted to pronounce that name out loud because they were afraid that they would be judged by saying the name improperly or using it in vain somehow. And so as a result, they never spoke his name. Instead, they said a substitute word and the word they substituted was Lord and Paul says you can't say Jesus is Lord unless you have the spirit in other words if you have the spirit you say that Jesus is your emperor he is your king he is your number one and he is God in the flesh anything less is not of the spirit The person with the partial understanding of Jesus does not have the Spirit. So here's what Paul is trying to say. There are lots of differences that you're going to find, but there's one distinction. There are lots of differences, but there's one division. And this one division is what do you say about Jesus? And anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what color of skin they have, if they affirm Jesus is Lord, they have the same spirit that you have, which means they're in the same body as you. And 
if they do not affirm that Jesus is Lord, if they have a partial understanding of Jesus, even if it goes so far as to understand that Jesus died for our sins, if they have a partial understanding of Jesus, that's not far enough. That's proof they don't have the Spirit, and therefore, they are not in your body. Now, he sets that all up. Because the rest of this chapter, he's going to talk about the beautiful differences that are in the body. But you have to know, not everyone is in the body. So let's get into it a little farther. Verse 7 here. Verse 7, he says, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there's given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. And to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of the one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand what Paul thinks is most important in this paragraph. Is he focused in this paragraph on the gifts or is he focused on the Spirit who gives them? It's pretty clear that he's focused on the Spirit. He says the word over and over and over and over again. Spirit, 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 Spirit. There's one in the same Spirit who's doing all this work. Our fault is to focus on the differences. And Paul is saying, I want you to focus on the Spirit Now, at the very beginning, he says something that's just absolutely profound. He says, to each one of us, the manifestation. Manifestation is that word where you take something ineffable, unknowable, uh, unimaginable, something uh, invisible, and it becomes tangible. And he says, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That That means the Spirit who is untouchable becomes touchable in you. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the common good. You know what that means? That means if the Spirit of God shows up in my life, it's not for me. It's for you. And if the Spirit of God shows up in your life, it's not for you. It's for me. Write it down this way. The spiritual gifts are given to me for you. And they're given to to you for me. This is the way the Spirit works. The Spirit never gives the gift where it needs to go. He gives the gift where it's on the way to get to where it needs to go. He gives the gift to you so that it will be through you for someone else. That's the way all the spiritual gifts work. We have a tendency to look at the spiritual gifts or any other kind of spiritual differences and we'll be something along these lines, man, I really want to have the gift of of knowledge for myself so that I will know things. Or I want to have the gift of prophecy so that I can have the sense that God is speaking to me in in some special way. Or I want to have the gift of tongues so that I myself will have this encounter of the sublime reality of the Spirit surpassing my own intellect. I want to have that experience for myself and the Spirit would say, I'm not going to do that. That's not the way I work. I don't do things to you for you. I do things to you, through you, for others. 
That's the way the Spirit works. Write this down. The Spirit is the one who gets to choose. It says this, the Spirit, it's by His will that we get what we get. Spiritual gifts are given according to the will of the Spirit. Verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. You can't get one. You can't manufacture one. You can ask, sure, fine. You can ask God for one of the spiritual gifts, but He's the one who determines who gets what. And now that I've covered that ground, that it's really all about the Spirit, I will reference the individual ones that he mentions here. He talks about a gift of wisdom. That's something along the lines of being able to understand what something means, but also understand how it applies. He talks about the gift of knowledge. And not just a gift of knowledge, he talks about a message of knowledge, where like I've been given some sort of understanding that maybe someone else needs, and so somehow God gave it to me first. Maybe I'm studying the Bible and I get an insight and now I have some knowledge that I can bring to you. Or maybe it's that I just have some sort of awareness where God has spoken to me in some sort of way where I know something that other people don't know and so I'm going to bring it to other people. Knowledge. He also says to another faith by the same Spirit. Listen, I tell you what, there are a lot of people who have a lot more faith than I do. Especially in some areas of life. In some areas of life I have a lot of faith and in other areas of life I don't have that much faith. I struggle all the time with certain kinds of areas of my life where I have to say, okay, yes, God is in charge of this one too, and yes, I can believe him in this one too. But faith is one of those things that all of us has a little bit differently. Then he says to another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. Yeah, I, I believe that God can give gifts of healing. He can actually give a person the gift of the ability to understand when, why, and how this other person needs some healing and to enter into that and say a prayer over that person and to see a miraculous healing actually take place in that person's life. I also believe that God made doctors. And I also believe that some doctors have the gift of healing. Because see, God can determine who gets what gift and how. And the gift doesn't always have to be something that we think is miraculous because look at the next gift. To another, miraculous powers. In other words, the one who had the gift of healing doesn't necessarily have the gift of miraculous powers. I just think that's kind of fun. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. So prophecy is when you understand a voice of God for a particular moment or speaking on behalf of God. Distinguishing between spirits. That would be understanding the difference between a spirit that's come from God and a spirit that has come from the world or the devil. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. Yeah, there's this idea that some churches, I don't know if you've ever been to some of these churches, but there's this idea that some of these churches will actually, in the midst of some of their worship gatherings, people will just start talking in languages that they've never learned before. To you, it's going to sound like a whole bunch of gibberish. And you'll be there in that midst of that thing, and sometimes someone will speak in in a language that sounds like gibberish, and then someone else will stand up and actually interpret it into English. And lo and behold, some people have the gift of interpretation of tongues. And Paul talks about both of those things. And you might be like, well, I'm glad we don't do that around here. And I'll tell you why we don't do it around here. It's because I don't have the gift of tongues. 
God has never given me the gift of tongues. And since he's never given me the gift of tongues, and he's not given me the gift of interpretation, and because I haven't been raised in that sort of environment, it's something that I'm personally a little bit uncomfortable with. It's one of the areas of my life where my faith is a little bit smaller. I'm just exposing myself to you a little bit here, where this is part of the difference in my spiritual gift makeup. And so since I'm the pastor of this church and I've got some limitations, this whole church has some of these limitations too. There are some things that are actually, I believe, real in the world today, real in some churches today, real in the spiritual gift mix that we don't have in our church. And you know why? Because we're missing out. And you know why? Because we're missing out on a lot of things. I say this all the time. We're missing out on tongues just like we're missing out on pipe organs. Some churches have them and some churches don't. And I'm okay with that because it's all part of the body of Christ. You see, the point isn't whether you have a specific gift. The point is, do you have the Spirit? And the Spirit chooses who gets what when. For His reasons, not ours. And that's just fine with me. Keep reading. Let's see what Paul says next here. Verse 12. He says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by how many? One spirit, so as to form how many? One body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the how many? One spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? Paul is doing two metaphors here. Metaphor number one, a body part can't get upset that it's not something else and therefore boycott the rest of the body. You're never going to wake up some morning, at least I hope, you're never going to wake up some morning and get out of bed and then look back at your bed and there's your ear still on the pillow. And you're like, dude, what's up? And he says, I'm sorry, man, I'm not, I'm not your head. And your head gets all the brains and I'm just, I don't really, I don't really feel like I fit in. You know, I'm always sort of on the fringes of things. I'm always sort of on the outside and I just don't feel like, and you know what, people look at me funny. And I'm not sure that I want to continue going around with you. And so I'm just going to stay back here. You know, that doesn't happen. Your ear doesn't just suddenly boycott your face or your head or anything like that. It doesn't happen. And yet, I have heard people say this in the context of a church before. I just don't feel like I fit in or something along those lines. It's happened. It's happened before. But your ear will never do something like that. Paul also goes another step. He says it's not just about your ear not being able to boycott the rest of your body. He also says, what if your entire body were only an ear? Well, that'd be a problem too. Because if your entire body were an ear, you'd be dead pretty soon because there's no heart 
pumping any blood. There's no food rejuvenating anything. And I tell you what, that ear is pretty darn ugly, so you're not going to have very good friends. But, uh, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. So the, the whole ear thing, if the entire body were an ear, that would not be a good situation. He gives another metaphor in the next set of verses here, verse 21. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. You see, now it's one part saying to another part, you're out of here. See, the first metaphor was the one part saying to the rest of the body, I'm going to go my own way. And the second metaphor, this next metaphor is one part saying to another part, I'm done with you. You go ahead and get on out of here. I'm the I. You're just a hand. Move along. No, that's the next metaphor. He says, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Clearly his answer is no. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, he would say. Here's his point. At the end of that, he gets back to his main section about talking about being in the church with the spiritual gifts. Now, of course, you need to notice that the list he gives at the end here is different from the list he gave at the beginning, which just again reconfirms that the list doesn't matter. The specific gifts don't matter nearly as much as the spirit who gives them each to us. But his point is very clear. This is the way the body works. And I tell you what, I'm so glad. I am so glad. My hand is totally different than my foot. And I'm so glad about that. Because if I had one of these things up here, I would not be happy with that. And I tell you what, my ear is completely different from my mouth. And I'm really glad about that. Because my mouth can taste things that I don't think my ear would have any sense of. I'm really glad that the two of those things are completely different. And I tell you what, my liver and my heart are totally different from each other, and I'm so grateful. And yet sometimes I look at the people around me who are different from me, and I say to myself, why can't you just be a little more like me? I'm going to tell you, in the body, if the body operates the way it should, there are three things that should never exist. Criticism, jealousy, and prejudice. They show up all the time. Now, when I talk about criticism, I'm not talking about the the idea of helping someone else become what they're supposed to be. I definitely think we should be comparing ourselves to Jesus. And I should compare you to Jesus, and you should compare me to Jesus, and I should compare me to Jesus, and you should compare you to Jesus. And we should always compare ourselves to Jesus, so at least we're operating on the same standard. We should always compare ourselves to Him. That's 
proper. And if I need to somehow challenge you to help you get a little closer to Jesus, and you need to challenge me to help me get a little closer to Jesus, that's appropriate. But challenge is different than criticism. Usually what criticism is, is when I say I'm like this, and you're not like this, and you're the one who needs to change. Criticism is when I point out the thing about you that's not like me, or sometimes the thing about you that is like me, and I tell you, you're the one who needs to change. You need to fix that problem. You need to fix that issue. And that's not what the body does. The hand doesn't criticize the heart. What about jealousy? There's so many things, especially in this passage, where you look at Paul listing off all these spiritual gifts, and you might see someone in the church who's got a spiritual position or a spiritual gift, and you might be jealous of that, and you might say, you know what, that should be me. That person has that position, and it really should be me. I'm, I'm the one who should have that position, or at least I should share that position with that person. That's the wrong way of viewing things. Or you say, that person has a particular gift, and I'm jealous of that gift. I wish I had that gift. If I had that gift, I'd be using that gift better than that person is using that gift. Or or something along those lines. Jealousy shouldn't exist. Because when has the foot ever said, guess what? I really wish I were the spleen. It's never gone that direction. Because your foot knows exactly what it's supposed to be and it's been designed for that purpose. And even though it's stuck in the shoe and it smells a lot, I tell you what, something about feet, they like it. I mean, if they didn't like the smell so much, they wouldn't produce it. Right? That's just what I'm saying. But here's the deal. Sometimes there's a part of the body that just doesn't smell right or there's another part of the body that's all beautiful and if either part shows jealousy to the other part, that's wrong. You know why? Because God's the one who put you where you are. And God's the one who gave you the gift you have. And jealousy is just you saying to God, God, you're not good enough for me. I need to choose my own path. And the people who say that aren't saying that Jesus is Lord. The people who say that aren't saying God's in charge. The people who say that don't have the spirit of God. And the people who say that aren't even in the body to begin with. So jealousy doesn't exist in the body. Nor does prejudice. You know something that makes me mad? In this world... White supremacy is a thing. White nationalism is a thing. And it seems to always be wrapped up with people who claim to follow Jesus. I tell you what, I want to kick them in the butt. Because it's stupid. Because, see, it's not the color of your skin that matters. It's not the nationality of your origin that matters. If nationality mattered to God, none of us would be in the body. Because he started with the Jews. He started with the nation of Israel. If God cared about the color of skin, very few of you would be in the family. Because your skin is just about as pale as mine. And God started in the Middle East. And I tell you what, if God cared about the color of the skin, he wouldn't have given us the one absolute dividing line. What do you say about Jesus? See, if you say Jesus is Lord, it doesn't matter what you look like, what you act like, what is in your family history, what is in your heritage, what's on your skin, on your body, or on your head. It doesn't matter. The spirit is in you and you're in the body. Prejudice is dumb because it just doesn't fit in the body. It doesn't fit in the body. 
And so as a result, if we're going to be the body, we have to live in a way that represents the body. And guess what? If you're different, there's a really good reason for it. If you're different, it's because God knows I need you the way you are. And if I'm different, it's because God knows you need me the way I am. Yeah, write that down. If you're different, it's because God knows I need you just the way you are. Skip ahead. Let's finish it up because guess what? We're in chapter 13 finally. He says here at the very end of chapter 12, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. You see what Paul is going to do after this whole statement about the body. Now Paul finally says, okay, now I'm going to show you the secret. How do you make the body actually operate? Here's the secret. There's a specific thing you have to get true in your life. Here it is. Verse 1, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying, I could have all of the earmarks of spirituality. I could have all the things that spiritual people think are spiritual things. And I could have the spiritual things in my life and you could look at me and you could say, oh, that man's so spiritual. And other people would look at me and they'd say, oh, that guy's so spiritual. I wish I could be like that guy. He's so spiritual. Look, he's got prophetic words. Look, that guy can do miracles. Look, that guy's endured so much hardship and yet God has kept him strong. You might be the kind of person who would be like, oh yeah, I'm so spiritual. I just want to be so spiritual. And he says, but guess what? If you have love, if you don't have love, it's all fake. It's not even real. You thought, it was, you thought it was angelic language. No, it's just symbols crashing. You thought it was miraculous powers. No, it's, you're nothing. You're just pretending. See, everything spiritual needs love to be real. And nothing spiritual is real without love. Nothing spiritual is real without love. Skip ahead. Let's go to verse 4. He says, love is patient. Okay, so now he needs to define it. If love is really the secret that we somehow have to know here, he needs to give us a definition of what love actually is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's, it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You know, I could go over each one of these things individually with you, but I don't even have to because you already know that all of these things are things that we don't say in our society are love, but they are love when you see them. When you see someone being patient with someone else, you perceive that as love. When you see someone being kind to someone else, you perceive that as love. When you see someone who is not boasting but lifting other people up, that looks like love. We all know it, but just we don't like to talk about it feeling that way. We have our own definitions of love, but Paul is saying, no, this is my definition of love. And all of these things here communicate two basic principles. You, as an individual, you're going to look at that other person over there, and you have a choice how to think about them. You can either think about them by being critical. Let's analyze everything that's true about that person. Let's see how they look. Let's see how they're dressed. Let's see what they act like. Let's see what color their skin is. I'm going to analyze all the facts about that person. I'm going to give critical, sound judgment to that other person. Or 
you can be optimistic. And you can say, you know what? I might see something in that person, but I bet there's a lot better stuff underneath. I bet you give that person a chance and I bet they really shine. You see, love is the thing that lifts other people up. Love is the thing that says, if I have the choice between me and you, I'm picking you. Love is the thing that says, whether it's true or not, I'm going to put you a little bit higher because I know when you get a little bit higher, you look more in the light and then you begin to grow into the person that you're supposed to be and I'll let God do the work in you that he needs to do. Love, real love boils down to this, optimism and self-sacrifice. I'm going to be optimistic about you and I'm going to sacrifice myself to do it. Optimism and self-sacrifice, that's what powers my patience. That's what powers me to not hold a grudge against another person. That's the thing that powers me to not be boastful, but to lift you up. That's the thing that powers me to do these things. I'm going to be optimistic, and I'm going to have self-sacrifice. See, that's the key to unity. That's the thing that builds the body together. Verse 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. Once again, he's making a list of the spiritual gifts, right? And he says, these gifts, they're going away. They're all going to pass away. All the stuff, all this stuff on this world, all this earthly stuff that we value so highly, all this stuff is just going to fade away. And then he illustrates it. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Once we see the truth, all this halfway stuff down here isn't going to matter as much. Verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. I grew out of the old stuff. We're all going to grow out of the old stuff. Keep going, verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. One of these days I'm going to see Jesus and I don't need prophecy anymore because I'll talk to him. I don't need knowledge anymore because I'll talk to him. I don't need wisdom anymore because I'll talk to him. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You see, what Paul is saying is he's saying all the stuff that you care about, all the stuff that divides us down here, all the differences of this world down here, all of that stuff is going to fade away into nothingness. But there are a couple things that are going to stay. Three things, in fact. These three things will remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, he says. Paul says there are three things that stay. All of the stuff of this earth is going to fade away, but your faith is going to last forever. And the people who have faith will last forever. Because faith is just simply saying God knows what he's doing. And faith is the thing that's going to last forever because God always knows what he's doing. And so the people who have the faith, they also will last forever. What about hope? Well, yeah, hope is the eternal thing because hope is saying, God, not only do I believe your way is going to work out, I believe your way is a good way. And I'm going to continue to hope in God. I'm going to hope in God for eternity because God is always going to be moving forward with something cool. You know, he's the creator of the universe. He can totally make something else that's cool and I'm just going to be hoping for it. I'm going to be like, wow, this is amazing. And so hope, faith, hope, they're going to last into eternity. And so is love, but love is different. Love is greater. And you know why love is greater? 
You see, faith and hope are things that you and I can have on this earth that are going to last for eternity. But love is special because love is the thing that God also has for you. See, love lasts forever because it's already lasted forever. God loves you. He he doesn't have faith in you. Listen, he already knows the decisions you're going to make. He doesn't need to have faith. He knows what you're going to do. He just simply knows your future. He knows what you're up to. He doesn't have to hope in you because he already knows all of the future. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So God doesn't need faith or hope, but he does have love. And that's why it's the greatest. Because when you step into love, you're not just stepping into something that you do for another human being. You're, you're stepping into something that has created this universe. God built this whole universe surrounding who he is, and he is a God of love. And so when you step into love, you step into how God made the entire universe. You step into him. That's why it's called the body of Christ. And love is the thing that binds it all together in perfect unity. And so, let me give you this one final phrase to write down. Diversity, powered by the Spirit and bound by love, makes the body beautiful. Listen, I don't know where this sits for you. Some of you in this room today, you're like halfway in to the whole Jesus thing. You believe he's the one who died for your sins, and so you've got a partial Jesus thing going on. But I'll tell you the truth today, you don't have the Spirit If Jesus isn't Lord of your life, then you don't actually have the Spirit at work in you, and therefore you're not officially part of what God would consider His body. You don't have a guaranteed future. You're just a person who's floating along with a partial understanding of Jesus, and you need to embrace what the Spirit is trying to speak into your hearts right now to say, no, make Jesus your Lord. Go all in. That's what needs to happen. For some of you in this room, you're kind of questioning about what this whole body thing is all about. You like your individuality. You like your independence. You like your idea of just being, you know, your spiritual person on your own, and you're going to value certain spiritual things, and you're not going to value other spiritual things, and you don't know what it really means to embrace the beauty of the body of Christ and and just, just love the diversity that God is doing in this. For some of you, you need to admit You're either critical or jealous or prejudiced or a combination of the three. And you need to shut down some of those things because in the body of Christ, those things don't exist. But I'll tell you what, for every single one of us, we need to be people of love. And we need to be people who say, I choose to make the body of Christ the thing I choose above myself. And love will be my operative word. Listen, I tried to find a song to close out our time today, and you can't imagine how many worship songs are all I, I, me, me, I, I, me, me. And so I was looking for some sort of song somewhere that had something to do with us or we, and I found one that's a brand new song, and most of the song is about us and we, but the, the part that's us and we in the song is really all about Jesus and what he has done for us. And I thought, well... At least that binds us together in understanding who Jesus really is and what he does for us. And then it comes to this bridge and the the words in the bridge at the end part of the song switch to I. And I was like, great, it's I. But it says this, I will give my life to honor this love. 
And so we're going to end our time with that song. It partially relates to the message, but at least it, it comes into this context where it says, I'm going I'm to totally receive what Jesus has done for us, and I will give my life to honor this love. And so I want to ask you as you prepare, as we close our time together, I want to ask you to spend a few moments in reflection and say, Jesus, am I able to give my life to honor this love? Am I able to give my life to honor the love that you have given to me? Let me pray for you. Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you, and we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always, we want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith wherever you are. Life is a journey, and no one should ever walk alone.